counterintuitive perhaps, but these actions that we're seeing also matter for workers who are not in unions. We have to make sure that there's data security and privacy. When artificial intelligence has access to social security numbers, healthcare issues, uh, and all kinds of personal information about um, a person's work evaluations and performance. Mm -hmm. Just yesterday, passed by a McDonald's that said, we're hiring at $14.50. Yeah. So that's shy of the 15, even though some of them still have the 15, but I'm like, yes, we, we did yes, that. Yes, you did. But now it's time to up, Absolutely. That, up that rate. In order for that anxiety not to preclude that process, they need some guarantees, some commitments that they're on that journey together with their employers, that they understand what's happening. There's transparency, they have a role. Oh, I said, well, I wouldn't take you to the opera. I wouldn't go to the opera, he said. That's why I wouldn't take you. I don't think you'd like it. You're listening to the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly, produced by the Labor Radio Podcast Network, laborradionetwork.org. I'm Chris Garlock. On today's show, Economic Policy Institute President Heidi Sheerholz on what the latest surge in labor actions means for workers and the fight for racial and economic justice. New York State AFL-CIO Legislative Director Mike Needle on legislative priorities for 2024. Carlos Jimenez, head of the AFL-CIO's Special Projects Division, talks about labor strikes over the past year. General Secretary of Uni Global Union Christy Hoffman on the benefits of being in a union in the age of AI. And writer and recording artist Hilary Peach reads from her memoir, Thick Skin, Field Notes from a Sister in the Brotherhood. This week's featured shows are The State of Working America, the podcast from the Economic Policy Institute, Union Strong, the official podcast from the New York State AFL-CIO, Black Work Talk, a show that elevates the voices of black labor, workers, leaders, activists, and intellectuals, Radio Labor, which promotes global communication between labor organizations and the Labor Heritage Power Hour, which promotes knowledge of the cultural heritage of the American worker through the arts. You'll find them all at laborradionetwork.org. And that's all ahead on this week's edition of the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly. Here's the show. Hello and welcome to the State of Working America podcast. I'm your host, Nick Kozlarich at the Economic Policy Institute, which is a nonpartisan think tank focused on creating a just and sustainable economy for workers and their families. As we start a new year, today we're looking back at one of the key trends in 2023, a re-energized labor movement. So what could the surge in labor actions mean for 2024 and beyond? To discuss, I want to welcome Heidi Sheerholtz, president of the Economic Policy Institute, and former chief economist at the U.S. Department of Labor. Heidi, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited for this discussion. I want to start big picture. Why are we seeing a re-energized labor movement right now? Um, mm -hmm. Unemployment rate has been below 4% um, for quite some time. How much is a tight labor market um, contributing to the, the wins for workers that we've seen? 
The increase in organizing and union activity has absolutely been fueled by the tight labor markets. Unemployment has actually been at or below 4% for the last two years. That's really, those are really tight labor markets and that really matters. And the key reason I think that matters or a key reason is that because even though it is technically illegal for workers to be fired for organizing, our labor law is so unbelievably weak that the consequences to an employer of illegally retaliating for against a worker for union activity are just a slap on the wrist. It happens all the time. So it is incredibly risky under current law for workers to engage in union activity. But the tight labor markets make it somewhat less risky because if workers are actually illegally fired, they are more likely to be able to find another job in a reasonable time frame. And that's huge. I, I think it has it plays a has played a big role. But I do think that the tight labor markets aren't the only thing that's going on here uh, that's sort of behind this resurgence. I think the public conversation that's going on right now around unionization and the high profile strikes that we're seeing is creating momentum. People are learning through seeing strike activities, through seeing this broader union activity and the conversation around it. People are learning the importance of joining together with their coworkers to demand changes. Um, I think, you know, now when people see something that's going on in their workplace that's not not as it should be than when they're not being treated fairly. Now, I think you better believe they're at least going to be thinking about whether they might want to form a union at their workplace. And, you know, some share of them actually do that, and that's going to really matter. Um, so that's another key thing. The, the, the sort of momentum around this is feeding on itself. And then there is also support like we have not seen for a very, very, very long time from the administration. President Biden went to a UAW picket line. A sitting president has never done that. I think that kind of support has certainly added to the momentum around this you know, interest in unionization and union activity. Can you also talk about how um, non-unionized workers could benefit as well from what the the gains that we're seeing for for these striking workers or those taking labor actions? Yeah, it that it, it's it's kind of counterintuitive, perhaps, but these actions that we're seeing also matter for workers who are not in unions. And you can the economists call that the you know spillover effect of strong unions, and you can see that spillover effect just absolutely playing out in real time right now. So the key example is factory workers at Toyota, Honda, and Hyundai didn't strike. They aren't even unionized. But after the big pay hikes at GM, Ford, and Stellantis as a result of the strikes in those companies, Toyota, Honda, and Hyundai workers also got increases. That's the spillover effect. And I when I when I think about sort of the theory behind the spillover effect, it that effect can come from two key sources. So one is higher wages in union companies 
can mean that non-union companies just have to pay better to get and keep the workers that they need. That can particularly be at play when there's a certain area that has a very high um, degree of, of unionization. What I think is probably more likely at play in, in the auto sector in particular right now is that employers will often pay higher wages to keep their workers from organizing. So that is also known as like the union threat effect. Um, and I will, I, I, I think it's useful to point out Sean Fain, the president of the UAW has made that union threat effect really, really explicit. I mean, he has said, and, and this is a quote, when we return to the bargaining table in 2028, it won't just be with the big three. And when he says the big three, he means GM, Ford, and Stellantis, but it will be with the big five or the big six. It, I just, I think it's hard to believe that those kinds of statements, that kind of intention didn't play a role in the wage increases at Toyota, Honda, and Hyundai. I am, I am absolutely sure that it did. Thank you again for talking with us today. It's been my pleasure. Thank you so much. And for more information on the state of the economy and the re-energized labor movement, visit us at epi.org or follow us on social media on Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, TikTok, and Instagram. Thank you for listening to the State of Working America podcast. For the New York State AFL-CIO, I'm Darcy Wells, and this is Union Strong. I'm proud. I'm proud. I am proud. I'm proud to be Union Strong. To be Union Strong. To be Union Strong. To be Union Strong. I'm a teacher, and I'm Union Strong. I wouldn't have it any other way. Welcome to 2024, brand new year, brand new legislative session, and we have a new legislative agenda. To talk about the legislative priorities for the New York State AFL-CIO and our 3,000 affiliates is our legislative director, Mike Neidl. Mike, thank you for joining us on the podcast. Thank you for having me. This is always a lot of fun. This is one of the funner things we get to do, Darcy, so Good. thanks. No pressure, right? Uh, well, maybe some. <laughs> a little bit. We're focused on. Uh, looking at the responsible development and use of artificial intelligence in the workforce. Uh, this is a new issue for all of us, and we're still really doing some research and working with the National AFL, CIO, and our affiliates on this. But you heard the governor talk about making it a priority to incentivize developers of artificial intelligence to set up in New York State, which is a good idea but we wanna make sure it's done in a responsible way so that we're not incentivizing the loss of jobs or the replacement of jobs with artificial intelligence products. Um, on top of that, artificial intelligence is popping up everywhere in the evaluation of work and the evaluation of quality of work, as well as, the screen, as, well as screening for candidates and applicants for jobs. So we wanna make sure that it's used in a fair and responsible way, that it's used in a transparent way, and workers know when their information is being used in the in the artificial intelligence versus a traditional human resources setting. Uh, and then finally, we have to make sure that the there's data security and privacy. You know, um, when artificial intelligence has access to social security numbers, 
healthcare insurance, I'm sorry, health insurance issues or healthcare issues uh, and all kinds of other personal information about um, a person's work evaluations and performance, mm -hmm. we want to make sure that is also protected and it's not being used irresponsibly. So there are a lot of issues and we've seen this pop up in the entertainment industry. Right. We've seen it pop up in um, healthcare. We're seeing it in the professions. So it's virtually, it's affecting virtually all workers across the state. Okay. And before you go, one more um, area, maybe I know there's a priority for us. Can you just update us on climate? What's going on there? Uh, absolutely. Climate has been and remains a major priority for us. We've been successful over the last several years of building in critical labor standards to ensure that as we transition from fossil fuel to, um, to uh, clean energy, mm -hmm that we are doing it responsibly and not destroying good jobs for bad. We want to create good jobs and protect as many jobs in the fossil fuel industry as we can and retrain them to operate in the new uh, clean energy area. Mm -hmm. So that involves Buy American. That involves prevailing rate and PLAs on the development and construction of new clean energy. That involves labor peace agreement and the operations and maintenance of those new uh, facilities by the new employers. So we're going to continue doing that and moving into next year, there's going to be a lot of uh, talk and the governor has already proposed uh, uh, new transmission, development of upgraded and better transmission of energy across and throughout the state uh, and, and some other new development programs for, of, uh, of um, renewable energy. So we'll be involved with that and continue that program as well. Okay, I know we just touched on a few things, um, so um, got your work cut out for you. We all do, I think, getting all this over the finish line, and hopefully we can have you back in about six months when the session wraps up and we'll go through uh, the successes, uh, and we look forward to that as well. But we'll make sure we let people know how they can um, see the rest of our agenda. So Mike Knight, Legislative Director at the New York State AFL-CIO, thank you for joining me. Thank you. It's great to be here. Welcome to Black Work Talk, the podcast voice of Black workers, leaders, activists, and intellectuals exploring the many connections between race, capitalism, labor, and culture in our struggle for democratic, progressive governing power. I'm your host, Jamala Rogers, on this episode, and we'll be joined shortly by Carlos Jimenez, who heads the Special Projects Division with the AFL-CIO. I know that you were going back to the early 30s in terms of organizing, but, you know, there was a strike in 1877. I wasn't there, but it was a powerful strike. This was the railroad strike. And this was done without the benefit of organized labor. They weren't labor unions then. So you had 100,000 folks across this country engaged in a, a general strike. And right here in St. Louis, because people want to talk about how backwards and, and stupid we are and unorganized, but close to 25,000 uh, workers were in the streets of downtown. This, this was a momentous kind of strike, and it was a general strike. So they were able to get 50% of the railroads shut down, which was... But the other thing that we learned coming out of that strike was it probably could have been more impactful and successful, but they allowed the whole racial dynamics to get in there and divide and conquer. So what I'm thinking about, Carlos, is two things. One is, what lessons have we learned about how we build uh, multi-racial uh, unity and solidarity? And 
are we close to looking at a general strike because of the very conditions that you just talked about, where corporations have become such an adversary to organized labor and to workers, period? You are giving me, yeah. Will we need that in the future? I'm going to pull a bill here and say, I want to talk about all of these in, in, in sections uh, because I, I heard him do that and I was like, I need to do that instead of just uh, talking too much. But I think, let me just say this. Anyone that has any shade or ill things to say about St. Louis or Missouri is not clear on what they're talking about. Because even I think about the Fight for 15 and the walk back program that you all really innovated there, walking ministers, uh, community organizations, and walking alongside those fast food workers back on the job. I mean, I witnessed that firsthand and I just, it became a national model. And so, and, and you know, you all. Yeah, the- and I, I did quite, yeah, I did quite a few walk backs. In fact, had to, you know, confront some of the employers. But I just yesterday, passed by at McDonald's that said we're hiring at $14.50. So that's shy of the 15, even though some of them still have the 15. But I'm like, yes, we we did that. Yes, you did. But now it's time to up that that rate. I mean, now that's not even living wage. So here we are again. Well, that's another episode. I just wanted to say that because I was like, I I can't allow anybody (laughs) to hate on St. Louis and Missouri, right? You all are the real deal. (laughs) I was down in Florida. Was it this week? Yeah, it was this week talking to uh, an entertainment union and their newly elected leaders actually about racial justice and the economy um, and and how to have these conversations and really helping them think through, you know, where are my members at? Where is my local at? What is the context of or- organizing our sector? And how are we thinking about growth? How are we thinking about like, you know, raising our standards? How are we thinking about governance and power? And how are we really talking about race, kind of where we are today Mm -hmm. and where we need to get to, knowing that we also live in a super polarized world where like language and and just, you know, the fabric across society is so, you know, ruptured. And so I I think these are big Mm -hmm. questions. I I continue to think and see, and I've experienced this myself in organized... You know, I've seen it in, in, in several industries how race continues to be used as a weapon to divide workers by empl- uh, by employers, right? And certainly th- there's a lot more to it, but but it's, you know, just as it was then in the 1870s, right? Employers and kind of folks on that side knew that they if they could create enough division and get folks to fight themselves, they could really kind of keep the attention away from themselves, and get as much as they could. And, and that's been the eternal challenge, I think, of the labor movement, how to get people across different identities, right? Whether it's race, gender, class, um, because all of these divisions show up so much in the workplace. Um, so, Carlos, thank you for joining us. We have to do this again. I, I thank you. Uh, really appreciate the opportunity and anytime. You all are the best. This is Solidarity News on Radio Labor. This is a Radio Labor Report recorded on Friday, January 19th, 2024. I'm Mark Belanger. There has been a study that was published about a month ago that said by 2030, 80% of white-collar workers could do their same job in four days than they do in five. That is Christy Hoffman, the General Secretary of Uni Global Union. Uni represents 20 million workers employed in the skills and services sectors in 150 countries. 
In Canada, Uni represents members of CUPE and Unifor, plus other unions such as the Canadian Union of Postal Workers. Ms. Hoffman was speaking at the World Economic Forum held in Davos, Switzerland, January 15th to 19th, 2024. She called for the right of workers to collectively bargain the implementation of artificial intelligence in their workplaces. I represent workers across service industries, ranging from professional athletes on one side to caregivers and cleaners on the other, but also including finance, IT and call centers and workers in telephone. So everybody's afraid. What's this mean for me? In the media industry, we've seen two strikes this year over getting the right to negotiate guardrails around the use of their images and their writing. So I think in the creatives, there's a lot of fear and they're, um, you know, taking steps to address that through bargaining. In the other industries, I think there's a mix of this could be great. Some of the evidence coming out of call centers, for example, is, yeah, this makes our job easier and better. On the other hand, we need the opportunity to sit down and negotiate with the employer to make sure it's fairly implemented, to make sure we get our fair benefit from it. Not all the gains flow to to the business that's fair and, and that some of the risks are mitigated, including job security. I would say if two-year, 10-year horizon, I think it will be more gradual than what people are fearing right now. We've seen some of these big transitions in bank for bank workers, for example, where many jobs have been eliminated over decades. And it's been done in a way, at least where there are unions, which is respectful of managing through attrition and early retirement and so on. So I don't think it necessarily means a huge displacement, just a, an adjustment. We represent workers in services. So in services right now, there's been very, very little application of Gen AI at scale in in large service situations apart from call centers. We see a little bit in finance and banking. And of course, for the actors and writers in the media sector, putting that apart because there is a question of using their image and their voice and so on. And that's kind of a different use case. That's more about ownership and control over over image. And I think that's a different issue that has to be dealt with in the context of copyright law and, of course, mixed with collective bargaining. I think that in the finance sector, for the workers, they've been going through such a long period of impacts through technology. I mean, so not generative AI so much as algorithmic management and all kinds of other tools that have eventually led to a combination of both surveillance on one hand that workers really do not like. And so that's sort of the old, I don't want to use the word old generation of, of technology because it's very much in effect in a, across a lot of industries and ranging from warehouses to a bank worker. I think the question of the algorithmic management has been so deeply unpopular and not necessarily resulted in more productivity rather than, you know, yeah. control versus, I would say, enhancement. It's not an augmentation. It's really just we're keeping an eye on you and you're going to really meet certain quotas. So that's been very unpopular. There has been a gradual job loss in in the banking industry because of ATMs, for example. People I represent are like anxious to know, what does this mean for me? And I, I understand like we don't want the anxiety to preclude the progress if that's the message, no. of course. But in order for that anxiety not to preclude that process, they need some guarantees, some commitments that they're on that journey together with their employers, that they understand what's happening. There's transparency. They have a role. They have a right. And that they'll be part of the process, both of avoiding risks such as they may be, which could be safety. It could, could be some training that they need and all of that, but also 
to support deployment. And all the studies, the OECD study on AI came out and said people are much happier where they've been consulted and brought into the process, and they're much more eager to use it. So I think this is where we're at. We want people to be excited. We also have to address the anxiety. And that's it. Labor news you can use. You can find our newscasts and features at radiolabor.net. I'm Mark Belanger. Thank you for listening. And remember, it's all about global solidarity. Hi, and welcome to the Labor Heritage Power Hour, a weekly radio show celebrating the cultural heritage of the American worker. We're a proud founding member of the Labor Radio Podcast Network, laborradionetwork.org. I'm Chris Garlock. On today's show, producer Susan Eisenberg talks with Hillary Peach. Hillary is a writer, recording artist, and a producer of unusual art projects. For 20 years, she also worked as a transient welder, traveling across Canada and the United States, working in pulp mills, chemical plants, refineries, and generating stations. In 2022, she released a memoir about this time, Thick Skin, Field Notes from a Sister in the Brotherhood. And today's segment includes several readings from the book. Our producer, Susan Eisenberg, spoke to Hillary recently about her work and her art. Susan is a poet, visual artist, and oral historian. I'm really excited to be here today with Hilary Peach and talking about her new memoir, Thick Skin, Field Notes from a Sister in the Brotherhood. Hilary, could you um, just tell us a bit about the work trajectory that you cover in this memoir of your work life? Sure. Hi, Susan. It's great Hi. to see you and hear you and be on the radio with you. I'm very excited about this. So what I, one thing that's wonderful about this memoir is that the length of the chapters, I think, really makes it work well for if you bring it with you to work, you could read one or two at your lunch break or coffee break, depending on how much time you get. So this is a story about working home mill, Harmac, which was just outside of Nanaimo, BC, near where I used to live. And my partner was an iron worker. It's called, I Wouldn't Take You With Me. I would never take a woman with me out on the high iron. Lawrence told me that at Harmac while we were partnered together on the blowdown tank. He was an iron worker who worked with us as a permit, then later joined as a member. He was an excellent welder and seldom spoke. He was slight and wiry and nimble as a cat. He always wore those heelless ironworker boots with his cuffs tucked and taped up in a black hoodie with the hood pulled well forward, shielding his face. His face, when you could see it, was always dirty like a child's. He just blurted it out. He finished burning a rod, lifted his welding helmet, and delivered his line. I would never take a woman with me out on the high iron. It was the only time he'd ever spoken to me, a statement of fact. He wanted me to know, I suppose, that that's where he drew the line. I knew what he meant. If you're an iron worker welding structural steel, walking the I-beams 20 or 30 or 40 stories up, you need to be able to trust your partner. You don't want to be out there with just anyone. You want to know that your partner doesn't need looking after, isn't going to walk out to the end of a beam and freeze. Lawrence had worked 
the high iron for years as a younger man before fall protection was mandatory. He didn't have to brag. The fact that he was still alive said enough. I could tell it wasn't personal. He just wanted me to know he'd weld jet rod with me, but walking the high iron was out. That's okay, Lawrence, I said, because there are lots of places where I wouldn't take you either, so we're about even. We finished the shift in silence. The next day, the sky was clear and blue, and we climbed up on the tank and started welding. Jet rod is a fast-moving fill rod with a heavy flux and high deposition rate. I hadn't used it before. The rods were long and awkward, and you had to move quickly. Lawrence had welded miles of it in his life, and when I asked, he gave me a quick lesson. It completely changed the way that I was handling it, and my welding was suddenly much better than the day before. Then out of nowhere, he spoke. Where? Where what? Where wouldn't you take me? You said yesterday there were places. Oh, I said, well, I wouldn't take you to the opera. I wouldn't go to the opera, he said. That's why I wouldn't take you. I don't think you'd like it. At first coffee, we climbed back up on the tank. Where else? Lawrence asked. Where else what? Where else wouldn't you take me? He seemed genuinely interested. He knew he wouldn't want to be with me 20 stories in the air, but he hadn't considered that I might also have no-go zones for him. I wouldn't take you to the ballet, I said. Lawrence scowled. I wouldn't go to the ballet. I know. We welded a while longer. Where else? I took off my helmet, unsnapped my respirator, and started cleaning it with some alcohol wipes. I wouldn't take you to a library because you'd be bored. I wouldn't take you to a night school cooking class or yoga. You're shy. Do you go to those things, he asked. Yes, we welded. I would not take you to an art gallery, I volunteered, where there was, say, a retrospective of French Impressionist paintings. But I would take you to a sculpture garden. What's a sculpture garden, he asked. It's a park or a public place, uh, like a garden, and there are giant sculptures displayed, sometimes by one artist and sometimes different ones. They can be bronze or steel or stone, whatever, you just walk around the park and look at sculptures. There's one in Central Park in New York. Lawrence studied me for a few seconds. I'd go to that, he said. I nodded. They're cool. That's how the rest of the week played out. We would well then discuss the places where I would or would not take him, and he would tell me whether or not I would take you to a dog show. I'd go to a dog show. I would take you on a bird count where you spend the day looking at birds and recording what you saw. I'd do that. I wouldn't take you ice skating. I wouldn't take you with me to try on shoes. I would take you to ride a miniature train. I would not take you on a Ferris wheel. While we were at work, the world became neatly divided into places where Lawrence would go with me and places where he would not. On the fourth day, we finished the tank and our seam was going to be x-rayed overnight. Lawrence, who hardly ever spoke to anyone, was waiting for me at the end of the shift outside of the trailer. We had started walking out of the mill to the gate together. A couple of guys were watching us from the smoking area. Where are you two lovebirds headed off to? One of them called out. But before I could answer, Lawrence turned around and called back. 
We're going to a dog show in a sculpture garden, dinner at a Moroccan restaurant, and maybe a poetry reading after in a punk rock bar. He kept walking, <laughs> smiling a little. I shrugged. I just let him decide. I said, it's easier that way. Writer and recording artist Hilary Peach on the Labor Heritage Power Hour, Thursdays at 1 p.m. on WPFW 89.3 FM in Washington, D.C., or find it on your favorite podcast platform. And that's going to do it for this week's edition of the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly. It's just a small sample of the amazing programs aired over the last week or so on more than 100 labor radio and podcast shows. They're all part of the Labor Radio Podcast Network, shows that focus on working people's issues and concerns. We've got links to all the network shows, laborradionetwork.org. You can also find them, use the hashtag laborradiopod on X, Facebook, and Instagram. The Labor Radio Podcast Weekly, edited this week by Patrick Dixon. I produced the show, and our social media guru, as always, is Mr. Harold Phillips. Harold, I hope you feel better. For Radio Podcast Weekly, this has been Chris Garlock, urging you to stay active and, of course, stay tuned to your local Labor Radio Podcast show. See you next week.